Hi, this is Sean, and welcome to If You've Come This Far, where my friend Chris and I talk with interesting people about interesting things, most of which is probably their lives and how they're living it and what we can learn from it. In this episode, we talk with David Dunn. Um, Chris, maybe tell the folks about our discussion with David. Yeah, so so Dave, uh, I've been a fan of Dave since since I met him about a year ago, and and I met him via these um, phone calls for men, usually fathers, who are trying to support someone uh, with an eating disorder. And this is through an organization, a nonprofit organization called Feast. Um, and Dave is not, uh, I think at the time, wasn't formally involved with Feast, but was just a regular on these calls. Uh, Dave has been raising a daughter who has anorexia for over 10 years now. Um, and he was on every call. Um, and he always had really thoughtful things to add to the conversation and, and, and clearly was, was like one of the elder statesmen of, of this crew. Like you could tell that Dave had, had, had been at this for a while and, and had given a lot of thought to it and had a lot of good strategies and everything else. And Feast is a really cool organization. It turns out Dave is now, uh, on the board of directors at Beast, but the real reason I wanted to get him on, the show was because he, uh, I guess two reasons. One, he, he throughout this uh, experience, he decided to, uh, to write a book, which is called Love, Crowd Out, Forgive, Accept, A Guide to Supporting a Loved One with Anorexia, um, which, which I read. And, and for the record, I don't even remember if we talked about this much, but I was on the call because my daughter, Anna, um, has, has struggled with anorexia. So I was going there for the peer support, a lot like the peer support that we try to provide through Men Living, but for this particular reason. And uh, so Dave wrote this book, which I found to be among the more helpful things I've looked at in, in our experience uh, helping to, to get Anna through this through this uh, illness. Um, and so I was fascinated that he wrote the book. I liked the book a lot. And then the other thing is that Dave Dave's about our age, you know, first half of his 50s. And he he had been the CEO of a of a, of a company uh, that was in sort of the corporate education space, um, and hung all that up to go back to get his master's in therapy to be a therapist. Uh, and so this is kind of related to several other episodes we've done about you know sort of around the idea of vocation or recareering or our Michael Clinton conversation, which is forthcoming around. You know, roaring into the second half of your life, and and here here we have this guy Dave who who's done that and taken a pretty substantial. Uh, I mean, risk is maybe not the right word, but it's not the wrong word either. You know, to 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 hang up a career like that and go back and do this is is I fucking awesome. Um, yeah. So I've been inspired by by Dave, and uh, I just think he's has so much to add, um, not just around eating disorders, but sort of just like living a full, meaningful life. Yeah. I mean, he's just a very thoughtful guy. And, um, you know, there's a lot that we talk about as it relates to family and raising kids and parenting and kind of going through a struggle with, with your spouse and what, 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 what that's like. And, you know, I read the book too, and I thought it was great that, um, you know, he has Cara, 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 um, also participate. So she's, if you will, kind of a co-author. And so you get her perspective on it as well, which is, I think, really interesting, um, and, uh, and yeah, so there's, there's a lot here in this conversation for sure. Yeah. And, and underlying all of this, uh, and I, I've, I've sort of noticed this every time I've ever talked to Dave or been on a call with Dave is this, um, genuine humility, like, yeah. you know, yes, he's written a book and he's going back to study his, you know, for his master's to be a therapist. And he's been a really accomplished business person um and at the end of the day in every conversation it's kind of like sort of this implicit shoulder shrug like i'm still just trying to figure this out man right. you know and, right. and i love that yeah. about him so uh, i think it was it, it was a fun call and and uh wouldn't be surprised if we try to corral him again because eating disorders um and, along with all mental illness issues are are sort of like high on everyone's radar does that make sense high on every they're on everyone's radar these days i mean it's yeah i mean there's a lot of tension on it and you know i mean for us where where we're doing a lot of work with guys i mean eating disorder is traditionally i think thing that thought of as a woman's issue and women and girls and that ain't the case 
it's uh, something that affects all genders. Yeah, and and it affects whole families too. So yeah, um, for sure, it's important for for us to lean on each other in that way. Anyway, I think it's a cool uh, conversation. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Hopefully, y'all do too. You and I met. I think it was last summer, and we met on on those uh, men of feast calls. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed recently that you sit on the board of of feast, and so I wonder if you can. Um, Maybe just tell us a little bit more about Feast and, and, and how you found Feast, which I assume has to do with your daughter. And your daughter's name is pronounced Kara, Kara. or Carl? Okay. Kara. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, yeah. So, so I got involved with this Feast. We first found out about it years ago. My daughter is 20 now. She was 10 when she got sick with anorexia. And we learned about Feast then. My wife used it more than I did. Um, really as a, for support. And that's what Feast is for. And so Feast is, there's a bunch, you know, a lot of different groups that support people with eating disorders. Feast is unique in that it supports the the caregivers who are supporting loved ones with eating disorders. So the focus is on the parents or caregivers, not on the person with the eating disorder. And that's very different. And it's, um, it's meaningful to me, I think, and kind of important because I think what's important when you're dealing with eating disorders, and I wonder how much this applies to a lot of other things in life that it's not currently applied to, but what's important for dealing with people with eating disorders is, is help, helping the parents figure out how to parent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's really hard and it's not intuitive. And um, Feast, I think, helps parents kind of understand um, be more under- accepting of themselves, accepting of the situation, figure out what to do. And, uh, and so it's a great organization. And, and, um, and so that's, I guess, I, I like them. I like what they do. And that's how I kind of got involved. I, uh, when I first wrote my book years ago, I, I wrote it, I wrote it four or five years ago, actually for the first, and I, I didn't do anything with it for a few years, but I had asked Laura Collins, who was the one who founded Feast to, to read it. And she gave me great feedback and was very supportive. And, uh, and so I, I guess that in a non-direct way strengthened my ties with Feast. She never did anything for me that, that was never related to Feast. It was, I reached out to her because she was an author of one of the big books out there on anorexia, eating with your anorexic. Um, so uh, I don't know. That's my connection yeah. with Feast. Well, Let, uh, yeah, let's go just, ahead. I, well, I just want to say at this point, let's just tell the listeners. So Dave's book is Love, Crowd Out, Forgive, Accept, The Guide to Supporting a Loved One with Anorexia. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, exa- I mean, my, my feedback would be it's exact, that I mean, it's a guidebook, and um, and I would just say, you know, starting that title out with the word love. I mean, um, when you talk about feast and 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 the the organization uh, helping those caregivers for those that are struggling with anorexia. I mean, you talk about love as being maybe the most mm-hmm. profound thing you can do, right? I mean, the simplest thing you can do is just love the person. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 There, think, there was a part where you wrote, Dave, like words can only do so much. I think you said you got to feed and love the person, which I, I thought was just so wonderfully simple as someone who's going through that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what what's uh what's kind of beautiful about it is that it it is really simple. And and I mean what what you need to do is not simple to do it. But what you need to do is is simple. You, you you need to do the best you can. Get up every day and, and try your hardest and, and keep trying things and figure out what your game plan is going to be and try to execute on your game plan. And 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 that's active love. That's that's what you're doing. And and remember remember your child for who they are. Remember everybody else in your family for who they are when you're going through tough times. And and um, you know, try to try to keep doing your best. Well, even though I've been at, at this, my daughter was diagnosed uh, about a year and a half ago. So a fraction of the time that you've been at it, um, I'd say, well, two things. One is that um, uh, I always joke about 
just fucking parenting being hard, let alone you throw this, this eating disorder in the mix. And now you're like, Oh my God, it was already a tall order to begin with. Uh, The second thing I'll say is I, I haven't read as much as I probably should have on, on this challenge that you and I have faced. Um, um, But uh, what I love that I can't, so I can't compare your book to other books that much, but I love the personal aspect of this. Like we get to see what Dave and Kara are, are going through. And that helped me understand kind of more what Anna's going through. And it helped yeah. normalize what, what I've felt at many points along the road. Yep. Yeah. So, so when I first wrote it, I, I did not intend for any of the, the personal stuff. The, the, oh, be, really? the best books out there, I, I think uh, Brave Girl Eating by Harriet Brown is a memoir. It's fantastic. Um, I was like, I can't write a memoir because I don't remember any of the specifics. I, I, could, I couldn't recount yesterday, much less the last years. Um, and, uh, but, but I felt like there was no how-to guide. There was nothing just telling you what to do. What, what do you say when these things come up? How do you respond? How, do you, how are you supposed to think about even like approach this stuff? So, so that was that was my goal, and then, and then the feedback I got was to make it personal, and and I thought, well, that's just hard for me because I don't remember specifics. But then, then I went through and I added all my personal notes. I thought, well, I do remember what I kind of the the overall what I was thinking and feeling as I was going through this. I I can't recount days, but I I can recount the experience. And then what was really cool, I actually finally got around to publishing the book my daughter still hadn't read it and i'd asked kara mm-hmm. for years like you know would you want to read it and she took it i printed it out for her once she never read it then then i actually had a copy from amazon that she could read and she didn't read it and then in um then i finally was like okay i'm gonna hit like this is for real published and then kara read it and so i unpublished it immediately <laughs> and uh and i wanted her feedback i was scared to death of what she would think of it because she could come back and said, one, she could have said, this feels too personal. I don't want this stuff out there. Um, right. and, and that would have stopped me. I didn't think she'd say that. But the thing I was most scared of is that she would come back and say, Dad, you got it all wrong. Like, uh-huh. I don't agree with the stuff you're saying. Instead, she came back and we sat down. We went to a coffee shop and we went like two hours and we went through the book and she loved it. And she mm-hmm. she was like, this, this is great. And she gave me tons of feedback. And after doing that, at the end of that, I was like, Kara, you want to write, like put your notes right in like I did. And so she went through and she did it, wrote her stuff and I didn't really add it much. I mean, she, uh, she put her stuff in there and, and that when she did that was the first time when I actually kind of felt excited about the book before then, you know, I originally wrote it to get it out of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it sat for three years, really with, I, I was kind of like it was out of my head. I was done with it. But then I, for a variety of reasons, kind of came back, kept coming back and finally did say I was going to publish it. But I got excited about it when Kara got behind it. Um, Mm -hmm. That was huge for me. It was huge for us to be able to talk about the stuff in there. So, Well, it it sounds like it took her a while to read the book. So it might also take her a while to listen to this podcast episode. But but, so if she doesn't tell her that, in my opinion, she crushed it and her what she added to the book added a ton ton. for me. Couldn't couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. 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 Um, No question. Dave. So you said early on, your wife was more involved with feast than you, but you were a regular, you were a staple member of the men of feast calls. And, And now I know that you joined the board. I'm not sure when you joined the board, but at some point it seems like you definitely got more involved in feast. Um, was there any, you know, particular Genesis around that? I don't think so. I actually got more involved with Feast after the point when I would have actually needed to use Feast services. So Kelly, my wife, used Feast services early on, <clears throat> but my involvement was more on the on the professional kind of helping them out level than than yeah, using yeah. the services. Um, I mean, I knew about them for a long time and I, and I followed them and I had incredible and have incredible respect for them. It, it's a phenomenal organization. Um, yeah. It's a very small organization. They're great people. Um, yeah. and, and I'm sure you know this, Chris, in, in the eating disorder world, there's a dearth of great people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so having a, a organization that really is getting the right messages out in the right way, um, is you know it's 
I can't can't think of a better way to spend my time. Yeah. So uh, so uh, I don't think I've told you much about our our men's group, and this and this podcast is loosely associated with our men's group, Men Living. But a big component of of our men's group is connection. And we don't use the term peer support, but another organization with which I'm involved, uh, which is a mental health or mental illness organization, uh, uses the term peer support. Um, I feel like that, you talk about professionals, I mean, we're lagging. Our understanding of anorexia is so is still far behind. And of course, when the three of us were all in our 50s, grew up, it was comically inept, right? Like we yep. thought... Um, we thought that, that it was, it, these were decisions that people were making. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, what you write at several points in your book about how reason is ineffective with an anorexic. Yeah. So, so I think reason is particularly ineffective with people with anorexia because when their brain is malnourished, they, they, they just aren't, they, they don't, I guess it's hard. It's hard to explain why they don't respond to reason it's much easier to explain that they don't respond mm-hmm. to reason and and i think i think one of the things that you you really learn as you go through this is that you got to stop asking why all the time there's things that just are and you got to accept them and if every parent who's got a kid with anorexia says my kid doesn't respond to reason. They're totally rational about all these other things, but they say crazy things about food. They do crazy things with food. They believe that that they don't need to eat. I mean, that, that's a crazy thing to think that, that you don't need the same amount of calories that every other human being on the planet needs. And you can even look around the room and see all the other kids who are dealing with anorexia and say, yeah, well, they all do need that, but I don't. And, and so... You can try to argue that out with somebody, but it doesn't matter. And, and everybody who's been through this has the same experience. So you don't have to understand why. You just have to accept that, that that is where their brain is at on this. And so if you try to reason with them, it's just not, it doesn't work. It doesn't help anything. What they need to eat is when their brain is re-nourished, they, they will come around just like everybody else does who has anorexia. Yeah, one one of our learnings. So we, I wouldn't say we were asleep at the wheel because we we try to be really thoughtful parents. We pay attention, but you know, anorex people with anorexia hide it; they conceal it really well. And so our kid Anna had had concealed it pretty really well. And then it was only after there was some self harm uh, that we had to, to, you know, and she'd struggled with anxiety and, and depression and now there's a self-harm and then it's like, Oh, and by the way, let's sprinkle on a little anorexia there. And then, and then you've got this really sort of uncoordinated healthcare system where you've got one party over here that says, Oh, you got to deal with the, with the depression first, um, and then deal with the, the anorexia. And then of course, all the eating disorder people are like, no, 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 because you can't deal with the depression until you re-nourish the brain. Um, have, have you, and I, again, I don't want to get into your recurring yet. Yeah. You're headed in that direction. Do, do you, is there a solution to the way we can sort of like get everyone on the same page? I, I don't know how you get everyone on the same page. Um, we never got much of our treatment team on the same page. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of times kind of went without a treatment team because we couldn't really get people mm-hmm. to, to really get it. Um, the, uh, but, but I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Um, I think what, what you do come back to is you come back to the community of people who have experienced living with anorexia and you use them as, as your guides. And, and I'm sure this is true for lots of mental by physical illnesses too. I mean, all kinds of things that, that there's a group of people who kind of understand something. And then, and then there's lots of other people who have kind of shoddy information and think they know a lot more than they think they know, like we do in so many areas of life. And, uh, and then, and then they're, because they think they know something, they're actually getting in the way, right They're I mean, that the whole, the whole idea that, that, not that your child's depression isn't important mm-hmm. and, and maybe needs to be treated at the same time as the anorexia, maybe not, but 
there's a good chance that if you treat the anorexia, the depression will go away. And there's no chance that if you treat the depression, the anorexia will go mm. away. Mm. So, so if you're going to start with one, start with the anorexia and, and hope the depression goes away. And if it doesn't, you know, that's certainly possible. And then you got to deal with that too. But there is, yeah. there is an obvious where I don't know how you get people to understand it. Well, and, and as you guys talk about treatment, um, you know, my understanding at an anecdotal level is that, that this, that anorexia eating disorders is a big, a big issue. I mean, it's, it's growing and it has been growing. Um, and I'm curious, and I'm curious as it relates to feast in particular, Dave, um, are you see is the organization seeing more and more demand for their services? Um, and, and are there enough resources to support um, kind of the demand and, and, and the, I don't know if it, I don't know that we would call it epidemic, but, but the stuff that I've read suggests that um, our culture is, is really dealing with a, with a significant problem and just growing. Right. Is that, do you, does the data that you see support that? I honestly have to say, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if more people have this eating disorders than used to have eating disorders on a percentage basis of populations, or if we're just more aware of them. Um, mm. I, I feel kind of like there's conflicting stuff out there that the contribution that our culture plays into it, it certainly plays into it. You know, we, uh, um, I, I think in, in promoting super thin people as being healthy and our kind of focus on low calorie, everything and stuff, but none of that causes anorexia, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that's one of the other things that like, like, People don't, you, you think about what it would take, like take yourself and say, you, you think about like really not eating to the point of starving yourself and how mm -hmm. hard that would be to do. And no cultural message is going to help you improve upon that. I mean, look how much trouble people have sticking to diets or right. like doing like, or, or exercising or doing like, you, th that's, that's something in your brain that clicks that where you can actually say, geez, I'm not hungry, even though I haven't eaten in two days, you yeah. know, um, and other people can't do that no matter what messaging they get. So anyway, I don't know if it's, if it's growing or not growing. I know that there's a ton of it out there and there's very little effective treatment. So yeah. growing or not growing, there's incredible need for, for quality services and for understanding and, and, um, for, uh, uniform coherent message about how to help people with anorexia um and uh yeah so there's tr tremendous need for sure the other thing I, i'd like to get your perspective on is um i would say that most people might look at this as a uh female issue um girls women right. um that uh, boys and men are affected by and eating disorder, eating as disorders as well. Um, maybe hiding in the shadows and and the fact that you know it maybe isn't manly to have an eating disorder. Right. Uh, perspective on that, and and again, are you seeing things in relationship to your work with Feast that would suggest you know, more boys and men are being are, are coming forward and maybe being yeah. served or not being served. <clears throat> Yeah, so I can't talk about that so much relation from my work, but I can talk about it in general and basically say, yeah, you, you're right. But boys and men don't come forward as often. If, if they, I think, have an eating disorder, they're less apt to be diagnosed with it. And it's way more prevalent in boys and men than, um, than it's considered to be. Is it equal to girls? I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Right. Um, right. But, but it's way more prevalent than, um, than people, than any of us kind of think it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Dave, there are, a, there are a couple points in the book where you wrote stuff that like really made me emotional. Uh, and at one point you wrote, um, I love my family. Maybe we could, maybe we could have gotten where we are today in an easier way, but maybe not. It's hard for me to imagine how we could have. And I, I read that. I'd like to hear more about like kind of what you meant. Cause what I took away from that was like, like a radically, oh, wait, sorry, Sean hates the, hates that term radical, <laughs> yeah. but like a radical, like, like a really powerful optimism or, or uh, sort of like 
present um, sort of assessment of, 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 of a, of a shitty hand that you, you got. Yeah. Down. Yeah. So um, I think that, that uh, th- th- there's a couple of th- things about interaction. One thing is that um, for, you, you talk about like parenting's hard alone, mm-hmm. just like, how, how do you deal with all these different things? One thing about, uh, and I've talked about this some in other kind of manifest groups that, that you look at how you approach a situation, like getting your your child to eat at a meal and they blow up and then you blow up and everything goes to hell and everybody leaves the table upset and she didn't eat and it's a total failure. Well, one of the things about and eating disorders that you can get a chance to try that again at the next meal. You get a lot of chances to keep trying. And, and once you start to realize that where every moment feels so important, but there's another moment coming. And, and, and so once you start to try to get better at these things, you have a lot of opportunity to practice. And, and I think, you know, for me, one of the things was like starting to realize when I was saying the wrong things, that I could just not say anything and not saying anything wasn't necessarily helpful, but Hey, maybe it was a step in the right direction. And then, then when I could actually learn to shut my mouth long enough to kind of see the situation through, I could start to think of what I wish I would have said. And, and because we didn't all leave the situation entirely upset, maybe my brain was working a little better to kind of think about how I could handle it differently. It was a process. It took time, you know, and, but then, but then you you get better and then you get to start to try things. And again, you get a lot of opportunities. And, and I think there's a, I I would think in, in uh, anything, whether it's a business problem, a game, when you, when you look at things at extremes, you, you kind of can see the direction that you should be going in. And so, so, with anorexia, there's an extreme here where you have to do stuff that maybe you could just kind of ignore in in other other areas of life. If if something I'm not I'm not explaining this well, but when when something doesn't come to head in any type of issue, you can just let it go. But you can't just let anorexia go. You you can't just you you've got to figure out how to be there for for your child, and so. So you do. So you keep trying things, I think. And and then you can have an opportunity to keep getting better at it. And I think in my family, we all got better at a lot of things. And and one of the greatest learnings was, I think, <clears throat> our daughter and our other kids saw us keep trying. And yeah. and they saw that, you know, we're forever. We're together. We're, we're going to work this out. And it might be ugly sometimes, but we're still here. Um, and, and I think that message comes through and then, and then you see it in your spouse, you see them keep trying and you kind of start to be realize you gain respect for, for yourself, for them, for everybody. And, um, I don't know, they keep working more as a team. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a crash course in like grit and perseverance. Right. Um, cause you don't have the option to quit really. You don't have the option to quit. Right. Right. So, so in a way I feel like, uh, which parents got this right at the beginning and like in, in all kinds of things, like there's so many things you get through as a parent that could be opportunities for you to learn to do all of your parenting better, but you, mm-hmm. but you never have to. Um, and you know, we, we all, uh, we all can learn a lot, you know, start, start out with young kids. It's hard. You don't know what yeah. you're doing. So can, can you, can you talk about, um, the relationship with you and your wife and were you in lockstep with your approach to this? Um, how, you know, how much you, you talked about it in an open and candid way about what you liked, what you didn't like, what each of you were doing and your reactions to things during this process. Yeah. So I, I'd say we fumbled through things and um, we were in lockstep sometimes and not other times. And, Sometimes we talked about stuff in reasonable ways and sometimes we fought it out and, and sometimes, um, you know, it it was kind of all over the place. Um, Mm -hmm. but we stuck together with it. We, we did, we, we were clear. 
we had a good understanding of what anorexia was and we didn't ever kind of drop the ball on that. Like we, we, we knew Kara had to eat. Yeah. <laughs> that was just like that. She, she had to eat. We had, we had to do what we could to help her eat. So, so we kind of kept our eye on the ball there. Um, but yeah, we didn't, I don't, it's hard for me to look back and even remember all the different things and say, did, did we agree all the time? Did we not? I'm sure we did not agree all the time. Yeah. Maybe can, 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 can you, and can, can you tell for, <laughs> for the folks that are listening, just how, how long it was, how, you know, Kara's worst case scenario and just so people have a perspective. Yeah. Kara got sick when she was 10. Um, we went out to a program at, uh, university of California at San Diego and did an intensive family therapy, uh, treatment program for one week, which really was focused on teaching Kelly and me how to, um, help Kara. So we came back with that and we had this awesome opportunity to basically stay in touch with one of the therapists out there who really served as our guide in the, in the coming years, in a very limited way, we talked to her every couple or few months. At times, a year might go by where we didn't talk to her. But but she could kind of, when, when we needed to check in and say, are we on course? Are we doing things right? She could direct us. Um, it took three years before Kara started, almost three years before she took over control of her food again. So during that time, we were in charge of all her meals, all her snacks. She ate exactly what we asked her to eat and not a calorie more. Um <clears throat> Literally not a calorie more. I, I make maple syrup in my backyard and Kara wouldn't dip her finger in and taste the sap water mm -hmm. to see if it tasted. So um, after three years, she started eating again. She had a couple of better years and uh, then she got sick again, went to a residential program in Boston for uh, a month. And then about... Um, Seven months after that, we went back out to San Diego and participated in a PHP program out there for eight weeks. Mm -hmm. And that was a real turning point for Kara. And, and, mm -hmm. and actually, Kara said at that point, she wanted to go to that program. She basically was like, I want to. The, the residential treatment program was a joke, really. It, it, it was a little mm -hmm. bit of a Band-Aid at the time. It, it, mm -hmm. it made things a little bit better. But. Um, like most people's experiences in these residential programs, unfortunately, it was, um, from a long-term perspective, very unhelpful. Um, but uh, but anyway, she got to the point where she said, I want to get better. She was 16, I think, at that point. She'd been dealing with this for six years. Um, and <clears throat> we went out to San Diego, and that program was was great. And, um, you know, and she says in the book, when she writes stuff at the end, like, she doesn't consider herself better, but mm -hmm. she's much mm -hmm. better than she was. And, and um, I think is committed to full recovery, which is, you know, it, it's hard to, there's no agreement on what that actually is. So, right. Hey, thanks for listening to, if you've come this far, this episode is being brought to you by our friends at half acre beer company right here in Chicago. We are huge fans of their beer and their food, and we're even bigger fans of the people that make it. Uh, so, uh, Dave, we, we've, we've interviewed recently a lot of folks who have written books, and, and sometimes they're self-help books, sometimes they're children's books or whatever. Um, and they're always geared to a particular audience. Um, I think the one common denominator, Sean, you can push back if you disagree, but um, is that there's always sort of... A, something there's always something in the book that's applicable to a broader audience and in your book the, the one thing i would want to point out and this is not really a question uh although you might have something to say about it was your your book talks uh about self-advocacy in healthcare. um we uh and i in my experience and my opinion that's definitely not um specific to eating disorders so we our younger daughter years ago spent two weeks in the hospital with a rare thing called Kawasaki syndrome and self-advocacy was key to this. Now this is also self-advocacy is something that, that those of us who are usually more educated or more privileged are, are better at, uh, but I want, this is why I would want everyone to hear this, but I think what I heard you say, well, you wrote at one point, every person on your treatment team works for you, mm -hmm. which is really powerful. And I, I, my, you know, the thing that I've said before is like, 
Never assume that healthcare professionals know everything or that you know nothing. Because I feel like that's how many right, of us right. enter into the medical care. Um, and you, you've talked about that a lot. I mean, what do you, how, what do you, uh, now you're going to go be a therapist. So yeah, yeah. I can sell that. I'm just kidding. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting on the bad team. The, uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I can't stand that doctors are called doctor. They, they, uh, like, I don't mind calling my doctor doctor when I'm in the doctor's office. I could call my professor professor when I'm going to class. Um, but, but why are they doctors? Why, why won't we meet them in the community? Do we, do we, talk to dr jones is instead of mr jones like what makes them so special my experience with doctors is that they're they're some of them are great right just like some accounts are great and some whatever are great but they're just people and and a lot of them learned what they learned a long time ago and and they they cover a huge range of stuff which would be hard for anybody to keep up on everything Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and we give them this incredible respect like that they know. I mean, I, I think during COVID, I don't know how many times I heard somebody like cite what they were doing with COVID because a friend of theirs who was a doctor said that they were doing this. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, well, they're, they're a doctor and they said this, but not all the doctors agree for one. And, and for two, what are they reading that you can't read that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily smarter than you are. They're a doctor, but this information is available to all of us. So anyway, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I would, like to take doctors down a, a, a <laughs> our, let's uh, we're, we're gonna start yeah. a movement here yeah yeah and, and that's not to say you know there's wonderful doctors just like there's wonderful everybody you know i mean they're sure. and, and i think most doctors are in there to try to do good and i don't question that that's that's certainly not my point so well and and, and the thing i would add to that is and we we interviewed uh a couple episodes ago sean's primary care physician um and he runs uh, a concierge practice and and his big thing there is like you medicine is also individualized and so you have to really know the patient and when you have a portfolio of patients that's massive it becomes impossible to know that and so the family yeah. the people that love the patient their input is is data like it's critical to making the right treatment right. decision right. so yeah anyway Absolutely. that's struck so, so do you guys so do you guys think that part of it is that we're afraid of death and so we want we want to get we want to identify these people that have studied this for I don't know, what is it sixteen years whatever from from college to being done, and that we put our faith in these people as lifesavers because we're afraid of death. And does that resonate with either one of you? I, not not for me. I don't think. I don't think well, it's because you thing. want to take them because you want to take them down a few times. So you're so so you're actually enlightened, Dave. I'm I'm thinking about the the greater population who put so much faith, complete faith, in doctors. Yeah, they they do get faith. I mean, you you said earlier, Chris, like we're, as an educated person, you you ought to be able to like we, we advocate for ourselves better. And and what's crazy to me is personally that I can find myself walking out of an appointment thinking of the questions I didn't ask uh-huh. and thinking even after everything I've been through and everything I know, I still sometimes will just like take their answer and walk out. And then afterwards be like, geez, if that had been a normal conversation I was having with anybody else, I would have asked questions, mm, more questions. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, it's really hard. Yeah. It's crazy too, yeah. because we're talking about like versus the time when any of the three of us are sitting around a business meeting those are relatively super low stakes decisions, whereas healthcare is high stakes decisions. So there's no right. more important time for us to interrogate or scrutinize. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Dave, uh, it, it, uh, I want to go back to that, that quote about maybe you would have gotten to where you are today in an easier way, but maybe not. Um, I, I suspect, although I want you to tell us the story, I suspect you wouldn't have resigned as the CEO of Webucator and started, uh, you know, gone back to school at this point, had it yeah. not been for your daughter having anorexia. Is that, how do you, how do you I think there's a like, good chance that that's that. correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know either. Um, but, but uh, certainly my involvement in the, I've always been interested in mental health. I actually worked with mentally ill adults for a few years after college to do direct oh, okay. care work. And I, and I loved it. And, and then I went to business school and found myself in business sitting behind a desk for 25 years, which I swore I would never do. And I loved it. I had great 
great experiences and and um and so but but uh yeah when with Kara being sick and and everything that we dealt with I got more involved obviously in the in the what I call the the anorexia community which is which is a wonderful community I mean one of the benefits of having a child with anorexia is you get the opportunity to participate in this community of incredible people um and and uh and doing that I I started thinking a lot about mental health again and, and and a lot of it actually was about my own mental health like how 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 do I in order to be the parent that I need to be I need to get my own head in order you know I need I need to figure out how to think about things how to address things how to not get angry when I want to get when I I'm inclined to get angry how to um how to be loving and and uh supportive um and so so doing all that yeah that that uh i don't know that i i wrote my book that that started kind of getting me back into things and then then yeah i guess i as i got increasingly involved i i started thinking yeah this this could be fun to keep doing more of and um but to tell us real quick what your what the career that you you left and the career that you're going into. So I worked for small businesses in senior management positions for I guess over 20 years, and and last was um, 13 years uh, at Webucator, which is a national training company, where I was CEO for I think the last nine or 10 years I was there, um, and we were. Um, it was, it was, uh, I guess to go, go from there to, um, it was a great job. It was great. Like we worked with great people. We had great customers. We were a great company. We are, Webcare still a great company. Um, I, I, uh, worked with my brother, which was fantastic. Um, and, uh, he's also my next door neighbor and my best friend. And we get to figure things out a lot together. And um, that was very helpful in making this change because he was kind of along for the ride with me the whole way with everything we went through with Kara and and kind of, I don't know, fi- figuring out life together. Um, to, not, not, that, not that we've got to figure it out, but working on it. Um, so, so from there to uh, it, it, the business came to a point where kind of, it was really running itself largely and and it was kind of honestly getting boring from for like as as far as what we could look to do with it and and what i could do with it so the opportunity was there that that change could be good for the company as well um and we were both looking like how do we what kind of changes do we want to make and then i kind of was like this started to come up as an option. I have a brother who's a therapist, a brother-in-law who's a therapist who was kind of encouraging me to, you should check out this degree. You could get, it'd be, it'd be pretty quick. You could get to be a therapist in a few years. And anyway, it just kind of came together that there, I, I think there's, uh, for me, at least in my life and the changes I've made, there's no one cause of anything. It's a whole bunch of stuff that comes mm-hmm. together at the right time that says, hey, you can make a big change right now. And it's a good time to do it. And, and that's kind of what happened, I guess. So coincidentally, we're having a conversation this afternoon for another episode with a guy who wrote a book about sort of making a big transition in the second part of your life or at any part of your life. Um, my guess is that you'll make less money as a therapist than you made as CEO. <laughs> uh, and that this decision was not just for you to make, it was a family decision. Yeah. So how, how did you and your wife and maybe your kids assess the, the impact of this change on you and your family. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I will. Um, my, uh, I mean, my wife has always been super supportive and, um, we're able to do this. And, uh, I think, um, it's, you know, it, it's important to do stuff you're passionate about in life. I think that, I think that's just it. It's the bottom line is like, you, I, in a way, I still loved my job at Webucator up to my last day. I was working with great people. It was, it was, we were, you know, we, I felt good about everything we did, but I wasn't excited anymore. And I, and I like to be excited by stuff. I want to be driven. I want to, I want to get up and want to do something. So, so it just, um, it felt right for me. My wife was very supportive and, um, 
you know, on the money side, I hopefully I can continue to be a therapist when I'm 90 and I couldn't be CEO of any company when I was 90. Mm. So maybe I can uh, make up for it on the back end. <laughs> there you go. The long view. The long yeah. view. How, how do you like going to school again? I start back up in August and we'll see. Um, ah. I'm really excited about it, actually, because uh, when I was in school, well, I'm studying stuff I really want to learn. So, mm-hmm. so this time around, I'm worried that, that uh, the professors and the other students won't want to dig into the material as much as I will, mm-hmm. rather than what, I, what the minimum I have to do to get through. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited to go back to school. Did you, did you ever think you could do what you wanted to do and have an impact um, without going back to school, without getting a therapist, you know, a, becoming a therapist? I think it'd be really hard. Um, I, I think that, uh, I mean, certainly there's practical things like being able to bill insurance. Like, I don't even know if I want to bill insurance, but the fact that I would, would have that degree and be allowed to make somebody else comfortable paying me, even though I don't take insurance. So, yep. um, People, people like there to be credentials. So mm-hmm. I think that's helpful for, for me for getting clients. And honestly, I have a lot to learn. I, I've been interested in mental health for most of my adult life. I've read it a ton. I've thought a lot about it. I've done, but, but I can't think of an area where there's more to learn. And mm-hmm. um, I think the field is changing a lot. So I think kind of really spending a couple of few years kind of studying hard and and learning as much as I can and getting myself in a position for to prepare for continuing education for the rest of my life in this area is, is pretty essential. So, um, yeah. Tell us uh, just to be clear, you're going back to get your master's in what? I get a master's in clinical mental health counseling and it will allow me to practice as a licensed mental health counselor, an LMHC, which is a, <clears throat> uh, I guess, a credential that you can bill insurance and you're accepted as a counselor and whatever. And, and, and will you, so, we, so wait, we won't have to call, we won't be able to call you doctor, right? Just, I want to. You can though, <laughs> you can. Oh, and I think, yeah. I think in addition to not calling doctors doctor, if we start calling other people doctor, then we can. Oh, really here you go. Yeah. Mess up the whole thing. Yeah. So. Dave, is the, is the plan or the hope to, um, to, to see primarily patients with eating disorders or like. So I don't know. Thoughts? I don't know yet. Um <clears throat> I find it eating disorders to be fascinating um, that, that I, I, I think they are fascinating in and of themselves uh, and how, how they affect the individuals who suffer from, from them. They're fascinating in the impact on the family dynamics that are dealing with them. And, and um, so I, I think there's a, a lot that's kind of from a, that's exciting in the realm of eating disorders where there, there's opportunity for, to do kind of, exciting work um but i think there's a lot of other exciting things in mental health too and i and i don't i don't know where i'd end up focusing it's hard for me to imagine that work with eating disorders won't be part of what i do but i don't know how big a part sure yeah so so i want to go back to the to uh again a global question for you guys the you know again i think i think without question um, there would be a perspective that there is an epidemic of mental health issues in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I wonder, and maybe it's just what I read, but I, I read um, Journal, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, other resources. And I wonder at some level if talking the way we talk about mental health and mental health issues um, perpetuates it makes it makes it worse because we're always talking about how bad things are and and the growth of anxiety and depression and mental health issues and, and i'm and i just i just want to know i mean if you if you guys have a perspective on that that says okay the pounding of the drum makes it worse 
I think that there's something to that. I mean, certainly it, it feels like um, kids in school almost, it's like, like if you're in eighth grade, like you got to have some type of mental health, health issue or you're like something's wrong with you because nothing's wrong with you. Um, mm. And, and so it, it does feel like we're, uh, yeah, we're encouraging people maybe to think about their, how are you disordered? What's, what, what is it that you're struggling with? Mm-hmm. You got to be mm-hmm. struggling all the time. And um, yeah, and I, I think we could uh, maybe accept it um, as more uh, a part of life. That, yeah, you, we, we all get depressed. We, you know, mm-hmm. we, we all get, we all have hard times and, and, and that we don't need to be diagnosed with anything to admit that, you know, just mm-hmm. like, some days, some months, some years are harder than others. That's yeah. that's life, right? Mm-hmm. Well, anything that's going to have to be clinically diagnosed runs that risk, right? There's not a blood test that tells you if you're depressed, right? And so there's going to be some subjective clinical diagnosis there. Uh, so I, I, I agree with you, Sean. I do think that there is there's potential downside to the drum beating, but I also like to think that it's affecting a, a more aggressive response and acceleration in the way we deliver mental wellness care and, and other medical care too. At least that's the hope for me. Um, yeah. And I, and I, and I hear you then. I think it's, it's great that Dave's going, going into the field because again, there's, there's a lack of resources to deal with, you know, what we view as, as I mean, an epidemic that is, I mean, every day we're talking about the numbers as, as Dave said, if you're in eighth grade and you don't have a problem, there's, there's a problem with you. And so the resources, the resource need is, is off the chat. Right. Right. Yeah. But, but so, so if, if you beat the drums and, and, and it does make everybody think about what's wrong with them. I mean, th- the same thing is we all go to our doctors with physical issues all the time. And, and you gotta, you know, something where you're, you know, you're playing soccer and your knees hurting and you got to sit out for a month and the, nobody looks at that as a long-term thing. And, right. and mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of the mental health stuff that it, where people go through could be treated the same way. And, and probably if you never saw a doctor for your knee, your knee would still get better, right? It's just going to take yeah. some time and maybe not as quickly and maybe not yep. as wholly, but, but still gets better. So maybe, you know, mental health can start to be seen kind of the same way and you can get, yeah, get, get the help without any stigma. And that'd mm-hmm. be great. I, I just want to say that as a 52 year old, I don't think any of my ailments are going to get better ever. <laughs> like my bad shoulder doesn't seem to be ever improving. I was like, I'm limping around with a bad ankle all the time. I wear braces on every fucking joint in my body. Um, I'm kidding, of course, because I'm still pretty active. But um, but but it is. I funny. actually don't think you're kidding. I actually think <laughs> <you're doing that. laughs> it all hurts. It's like uh, David Sears once said he had a, his lower back hurt, and he decided that it must be cancer of the lower back. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I'll say I, I had a, uh, I had a pain going down my leg for years. I saw multiple different doctors for it. This was another thing that makes me think so highly of doctors or not. Um, and, and I never got better and it kept getting worse. I finally saw a physical therapist who was recommended by a friend who said, this woman's amazing. She looked at me and, and within like 10 minutes of, of being there, she goes, oh, this is easy. This is what you got to do. And, and then for the next like two months, I had to do this stretch that took like 10 minutes, like every two hours. I was getting up in the middle of the night and doing it. I had to like stretch out some muscle that you, whatever. I did what she said. That was maybe 10 years ago. I got better, fully better. Don't have that pain anymore. And since then, I've consulted it on her on other things. And I'm physically, I'm 54 years old. I feel better than I felt since I was in probably my late 20s. And, and I don't put that much time into it, but, but I'm basically looking at these things as like, okay, well, why is that hurt? And, and can I fix it? And, uh, and usually I can. So. Yeah, that, that, that's, uh, this is one of the reasons why it makes me happy that you both because of your age and your life experience, but also with your business experience is going back to study, to be a therapist, because hopefully you'll be able to sort of impart some like, I'm speaking out of turn here, but I feel I sometimes wonder if medical schools or other advanced degrees in medical or other healthcare don't don't train future caregivers to use judgment. 
It's like, here's the procedure, here's the diagnosis, these are the symptoms. But sometimes it's like integrating a bunch of disparate data or being a physical therapist and just saying, well, look, your left shoulder is lower than your right shoulder or some, some right. shit like that right. yeah. um, is, is the step that doctors sometimes miss. And sometimes it, maybe it's because they're carrying, like Sean, they're, maybe they're caring for 4,000 different patients. Right. They can't right. keep it all straight. But, but anyway, I, I think, uh, you know, that's what makes me excited for you to be a therapist because I expect you to, to, to really help people in a big way, Dave. So good on so. you, man. Um, well, listen, um, Sean, do you have any other questions before we, before we drill Dave with our, with our three, um, no. end of go show? right ahead. Dave, do you have anything else that you want to say about the book or, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously, you know, our listenership is not in the millions. Um, but, <laughs> but, but I, I would say here on this podcast that I sure wish I had your book a year and a half ago when, when my daughter was diagnosed. Great. Um, no, I, I don't think there's anything else. I, uh, I hope if people read it, I hope it's, I hope it's helpful. And, and I think the, um, I, I think the, the key, if, if you've got a loved one with anorexia or any eating disorder and, and probably just about anything, just try to get, get down to the basics and, and, and simplify things and think about what you need to do primary goals. And, and it's one of the, title of the book love love cry out forgive accept i mean really those four that's it that's that's kind of what you got to do and 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 it's helpful if you can i think uh it, and everything in life that matters simplify it figure out figure out what you what you got to do and, and keep it simple mm-hmm. well then um, i gotta i gotta share the I, I mentioned earlier that there were a couple points in your book where i got emotional the 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 the, the best the best sort of three sentences, in my opinion, of your book, you wrote, so how do we, sh- how do we show our love? Show up, period, kiss her goodnight, period. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck, maybe I haven't done that enough. So anyway, thank you for, for the book and, and for all the lessons. And now we have to ask you three questions at the end here. All right. Remember the Inside the Actor Studio? You remember that show where, where, where what was his no. name, Sean? Yeah, anyway, the host would ask like yeah. several canned questions. James Lipton. James Lipton. Yeah. yeah. Um, these are a little cheeky, but um, but if you could give us your 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 sort of knee-jerk answers. First question, Dave, is what do you wish you could have told your 10-year-old self? Um be curious. Uh don't judge yourself, don't judge others, and um be kind. That's wow. awesome. And I'll, I'll tell you why you see, I'm wearing a Ted Lasso shirt. I don't know if you watch Ted Lasso. Do you watch it? I did. I watched the first season. So you remember where he quotes Walt Whitman, be curious, not judgmental. That's yes. my next tattoo. Um, shortly after that, I might say, you know, show up, kiss her goodnight. Uh, Cause that's, a good <laughs> but I love that answer. Um, second question is, do you have a mantra in life or, or even just a mantra these days? Um, no, I don't have a mantra. I, I think uh, I, I constantly try to remind myself to be present, to, to be in, in the now. Um, I don't really have a mantra to do it, but I, I try to bring myself back to as, as close to right here, right now as I can get. So Right on, right on. Yep. Last question is, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? <laughs> Um, that I was kind, um, that I listened and, uh, I guess that I, that I tried hard to be the best person I could be. I love it. Thanks, Dave. Love it. I, yeah, just great. Uh, best of luck in your new career, your next career. Thank you. Yeah. Study hard, study hard. <laughs> <laughs> Did you go yes. buy all your binders and, and your school supplies yet? Oh my God. I, have, I have to do that. Everything's online now, don't right? Do I, don't, I just need don't this you, right here. Don't, like your book bag and all that. Don't you have to do all that? I don't know. Yeah, make sure you get some whiteout. So if you make a typo on your typewriter. <laughs> Highlight is right. That's right. You're yeah. going to be a great therapist. Uh, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Great to meet you, Sean. And uh, Same. 
Take care. Thanks, man. Yep. Take care. Bye. See ya. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out, mnliving.org.